Jim Stroud fights to save America from the woke agenda by exposing the left and inspiring right turns with facts and informed opinions. Prepare yourself for intriguing interviews, political snark, and social commentary from a patriotic and conservative perspective. And it all starts in three, two, one. The Things I Think About podcast begins now. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to another action-packed episode of the Things I Think About podcast. I'm your host, Jim Stroud. And with me, as always, is a very special guest, more special than others. (laughs) Special guest, if you would, tell us, who are you and what do you do? Well, hey, Jim, thank you for having me on today. It's a pleasure. Mm. Uh, My name is Radia. I'm going to spell it for you because everyone throws this H all over the place. It's (laughs) R-A-D. H-I-A. And my last name is Gleis, G-L-E-I-S. And you can visit my uh, my website, which is radiagleis.com. And I am the author of a newly released book called The Followers, Holy Hell and the Disciple of Narcissistic Leaders. Uh, how, and the subtitle is How My Years in a Notorious Cult Parallel Today's Cultural Mania. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, that title man that title grabs you right there that's that's mm-hmm. sure to be i don't know if it's on the new york times bestseller list yet but uh i'm yeah, sure it will so. be it I will be so. very soon uh I, it's also you know jim for hmm. your uh for your listeners who like to listen rather than read which hmm. i'm kind of like that nowadays it's also on audibles Okay. Uh, and it's in my it's in my voice, so you can get it on Amazon or Barnes and Noble, and it's in in Kindle and soft and hardcover, but it's also on Audible. So you know, hey. if you're not a reader, then you hey. probably enjoy it. I, I love it. You're warming the capitalist heart of me. Yay! <laughs> Yay! Promote! I promote! Promote! Mm-hmm. Um, prior to our call, I was doing a little bit of research on uh, just cults in general because I, I I do find them them fascinating. And I came across this research uh, from Psychology Today. Let me, let me read a quote to you and see if it bears out with your experience. Mm-hmm. So this is from an article called Why Cults Are Mindless. And uh, the quote says, research on U.S. communes suggests that organizations need to be quite demanding to get their members committed enough to stay the distance. When sociologists Richard Sosi and Eric Bressler studied 83 19th century communes in the U.S., they found two intriguing patterns, and these are the two patterns they, they picked out. Uh, the first was that the more demanding the communes were, the longer they lasted. Bigger sacrifices engendered greater emotional commitment to the group. And then secondly, uh, when backed up by a religious belief system, communes can tolerate considerable inequality. And this may be illustrated in differences in permissible sexual behavior. Uh, that fascinated me. So I wanna ask you, from your experience, um, do you think that's, that holds true with your experience? Well, you know, <laughs> there's a chapter in my book called, it is entitled, What is a Cult? 
it's complicated. <laughs> and it and it is complicated because mm. you know we use that word now and it's become a, a sort of a pejorative epithet that people throw out. Oh, sure. you know, you're you're in a cult, so blah blah blah. And when I wrote this, you know, nobody wakes up one day and says, you know, I think I'm gonna join a cult. <laughs> you yeah. know, usually it sneaks up on you. You don't realize that you are you are being uh, particularly manipulated or whatever. Sure, um, and, and, and let me let me interject just quickly right there for for the benefit of those who don't know. I listened to your background a little bit. I know you're a certified clinical nutritionist, uh, background in biochemistry, educator mm-hmm. for thirty three years. So you didn't from just from your biography alone, you didn't strike me as a highly gullible person. So exactly, I want to sort yeah, of remove it, that thinking from a lot of people's it, minds. Exactly, right off. and that is a typical uh, reaction when they hear that four-letter word "cult." Mm-hmm. So they they think, "Oh, that's for the gullible, that's for the uneducated, that's for the stupid." I'm I'm neither stupid nor uneducated, mm. and uh, I have several graduate degrees and all of that stuff. So. Yeah, and I all, I always say this. Um, you you remember Bernie Madoff, sure, the guy who's sitting in prison right now. Oh yeah. Um, uh, do you think that all of the people that he duped were stupid or uneducated? <laughs> Not at all. Not <laughs> right. at all. All those millionaires that got duped, you know. So we have to remember a couple of things. First of all, uh, if it is a if it is a cult, and some people ask me, they think they they say to me, Radia, do you think? that um, religions are considered a cult, regardless of the size. Mm. And that's a really interesting question because Mm. one has to consider the notion of Socratic thinking versus Mm. non-Socratic thinking. So non-Socratic thinking is you, you, you put an idea out on the table, we get to argue about it, we get to question it, we get to, you know, uh, put our two cents in, and then we walk away with our own conclusion. But a non-Socratic kind of teaching, that is where we have to be very careful, because that's when you don't get to question, and you don't get to argue, and you don't get to say your ideas and so there, right there is the beginning of indoctrination. And as you said, as your quote from, um, from the article was, the more disciplined it is uh, and the more dogmatic it is, mm. the, the, the longer the longevity. And, and there is something to say about that. Um, partially, and oh my God, I don't know if you saw this, but I saw the other night um, on Netflix. This is a movie called The Push. Have you seen The Push? No, I haven't. Oh my God, you have to see this. Mm. This was a this was a documentary, and the filmmaker had set up a very elaborate scheme. It was all deliberate to see how far they could get just your average person. You're good intelligent, you know, nice person to push somebody off of, off of a building to their death. Oh, wow. Check it out. It's called the push, hmm. you know? So when you think, you know, oh, they're in a cult, I'd never fall for that. <laughs> really? See the movie, the push, see the movie, holy hell too. Um, but the reason why I wrote the book was because 
I started to tell you when I, I started to tell you before we, we came on, um, I left the group in 2006. And it wasn't until 2016 when the movie Holy Hell came out. Um, Holy Hell was, uh, well, it was one of the top 10 picks at uh, Sundance. And then CNN bought it. And then it went to Netflix, another top, top uh, documentary. And now it's finally on Amazon. When Holy Hell came out, that was the first time I even saw that film. So it was the first time I got to see in an audience of a whole bunch of strangers, my life splayed out on the big screen. Mm. And I got to see the secrets and the abuse that I wasn't aware of that was going on for 20 some odd years behind our back. Mm. Um, the, the leader was homosexual. So the females were not put in that position of sexual abuse. Mm. So um, we really didn't know the details of of the terrible, uh, terrible things that were going on. So when I saw the film, when I was in the film, actually, it made me start to think, you know, when I left, I just wanted to leave. I wanted to leave that world behind me and never look back. But when I saw the film, I thought to myself, I'm a researcher. That's what I do. As a biochemical analyst, I have to explain to my clients very complex issues in a way that they can understand. So I said, I, I've got to do the research to find out why, why I and why others make these decisions and how far can we go? Like in that movie, Push, you're gonna, your mind is gonna be blown to see mm. how far they will go. But mm. it is all a matter of the right narrative and the right time and the right set of circumstances and so when people say, ah, you know, I did a lot of uh, Q and A's for the, for the film. And a lot of people were very sympathetic and very, you know, compassionate. And they looked at the film and said, yeah, I, I get it. I joined that group. And others basically said, ah, I'd never fall for that. You know, I'd never be that stupid. Be very careful what you think you will and will not fall for. It depends on what you're looking for. Mm. Now, when it's, when it's compounded by having a pathological narcissist, uh, a malignant narcissist, who they, they're, they're an interesting pathology because one, uh, psychologists and psychiatrists say that that is the one mental disorder that has no cure. And the reason why it has no cure is because to the narcissist, it's always everybody else, it's never them. They're always the good person and everybody else is the bad. And they will do everything to maintain that narcissist supply. So when I wrote the book, the first working title was called Duped because mm. it was in hindsight that I found, oh my God, he was lying through his teeth. And it was not just him, but it was a collective deception. Like the people in the higher tiers and I was there, but I was there in a different position. They were all sort of inadvertently in on it, you know? Mm. So I say in my book, you know, when we go to Disneyland, um, we're willing to forego our disbelief. We know it's fake. We know it's a fantasy, but we'll forego our disbelief to go along with the ride. Sure. Well, what, if you, what if you don't know it's fake? 
What if you don't know you're being lied to? And not only your friends, your best friends and your family and the person that you admire the most is a fraud. What do you do with that? You know, like I said, mm. with Bernie Madoff, you know, you don't have to be stupid if everyone around you, and this is the danger of group think. Sure. If everyone around you is doing it, will you do it? You know, and it's a huge moral issue, but especially if you don't know that the it that you're making a choice of will you do or not, you don't even know what's happening. You don't know that possibly there's abuse going on. So it only, it was in hindsight, it was after 10 years after I left the group and I looked in hindsight of all, and I take you through step by step. And I actually, I take you way back. I take you to where I grew up and what were the circumstances, one thing that led me to the next, to the next, that even brought me to the search of a community. You know, so it's, it, it's complex with people. And in many, in many cases, we, have to, we do have to be careful of these words like brainwash. Oh, they're brainwashed. Oh, mm. they don't think for themselves. Um, the, the literal translation or the literal definition of brainwash is that you are radicalized in your belief, either usually under duress, imprisonment, or torture right? Mm. That's what brainwashing is. So there's a very big difference between groupthink and compliance and brainwash. And most of the people that you see in groups, whether they're small or large, are, they already came in looking for that. They already came in looking for some sort of ideology or some place to belong or something that they were already looking for. It wasn't that the, the teacher in my case radicalized me in my thoughts or beliefs. I was on this journey from the time I was 14 years old, very influenced by the Catholic Church. Hmm. Um, you know, I was raised a Catholic. Although I left Catholicism at the age of seven, which to the Catholics is the age of reason, um, I still grew up in, in the Catholic uh, church until I got out of high school. And I was enamored with the saints. Um, I was enamored with, here's these, these incredible stories of these people that had some sort of transcendental experience, regardless of possibly their suffering or their martyrdom or whatever, they were able to transcend it because they had some sort of union with God. Right. So I, so I was thinking, well, that has to be somehow true. That has to be, if God is all things, then God has to be in me somewhere and there must be a way in. So when you look at the lives of the saints or whether it's Jesus or Buddha or all of these great, you know, leaders in, in our life, in our, in our history, um, how did they do it? And there must be a way. So I set out on a journey to find that. And by the time I was in high school, I was studying comparative religions. And uh, we were studying Judaism and Hinduism and Buddhism and all of the isms. And in Hinduism, there was a, a, a word called nirvana. And I asked the teacher, what does this word mean? And he said, oh, uh, some yogis in India through a certain practice of meditation experience God directly. Next question. And I'm like, wait, whoa, what? 
come on. And, he, and I said, is that true? And he said, well, apparently. And I'm like, okay, well, first of all, what are you doing here if that's true? And, so, you know, if there's a way in, like, why, why are we all sitting around, you know? So I set out to pursue those meditation techniques for another 13, 14 years. So when I was in my mid to late 20s, I found somebody who claimed, who said, yes, I have those techniques. I experienced them, blah, blah, blah. And so, and so the journey began. But it was a long pursuit. Nobody was manipulating me or, or trying to uh, radicalize my beliefs. I believed that there has to be these meditation techniques. And when somebody says, yes, I can show you the techniques, great. Okay, what do I got to do? You know, so it's the what do I got to do <laughs> that gets you down the path? Now, you know, in Eastern religion, there's a lot of practices. Uh, the notion of master-disciple relationship, sure. very similar in early Christianity, Jesus being the master and his disciples. Um, that's, and Buddha and his disciples. Uh, that is not an uncommon scenario and master in this case not like southern master slave but master being teacher and disciple being student sure i get it so once you're once you've decided that this person because of many things that seem to be evident seems to be having the experience you're looking for you automatically say, okay, allow me to be the, the teacher, the, uh, you be the teacher and I'll be the disciple. I'll be the student. Tell me what to do. Tell me how to get there and how to stay there and how to practice that. Well, that's all fine and dandy. And in the very beginning, that's what it was all about. It was about the four techniques of what was referred to as the knowledge. But this teacher was a narcissist who with our adulation and our respect and our honor started to build his narcissism. So after a while, this was kind of feeling good to him. You know, we started to look at him like a Jesus or a Buddha or a, you know, a highly revered type of enlightened being. Mm. Now, this guy was a total fraud, total fraud. Come to find out. But he was staging everything and really rehearsing it. So he was an actor, basically. So every time he was in our midst, he had this sort of presence about him and this, this sublime kind of uh, ethereal kind of disposition. So it was like, I didn't want to worship him but I wanted what he was having, <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's like, uh, like in Harry met Sally, you know, mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. like, if you can be in this state of just constant peace and whatever, I want that. So, so teach me how to get there. Well, he was a fraud. He was full of bullshit, you know, <laughs> right. but how am I supposed to know that? I didn't know that. So the, in the beginning, it was all about the meditation, and I was initiated into those meditation techniques, and they were very profound, which I describe in my book. Hmm. Um, but it, was, it wasn't all the time. So the teachings was, 
okay, how do you stay in that transcendental state? And how do you practice that? And how, what do you have to do? So how do you stay in the state of selfless service? In Eastern religion, it's usually um, your ego is what keeps you from your divine union. Because as long as you have an ego, there's an identity of self. And as long as there's a self, there can't be you and God. You can't have a union. So the goal was to transcend the ego. Well, isn't that convenient for a narcissist to take advantage of? Because every mm -hmm. time we questioned him, it was, you're just in your ego. You're just in your mind. Drop your mind and surrender. Wow. And at the time, yeah, at the time, it, it sounded, you know, yes, you're, you're showing me what I'm trying to transcend. Ah, isn't that handy? So, so, don't, so, so don't rely on your own common sense. Just rely on whatever he says. Basically. Yeah, because, yeah, because your common sense is just your, your questioning mind, your ego. Listen to your master. You know, mm. listen to that who is higher than you. Listen to your teacher. Don't question your teacher. I see. You know, so that's the Socratic versus the non-Socratic kind of teaching. And seeing as though the road to nirvana was to learn selfless service and seeking unconditional love. Well, when it's unconditional love, then all conditions are off the table. So if you're a narcissist, right, if you're a malignant narcissist, isn't that handy, <laughs> you know? Um, so we sort of fell into this scenario and it grew. So originally it was connect to God's love. And then after a while, it was connect to my love. Mm. And we mm. questioned him. I questioned him. I said, well, what's this? connect to my love all of a sudden. And he said, well, Radia, some people, not you, because he knew how to play me. He played everyone. Sure. He gave them exactly what they wanted to hear. He said, some people, not you, need a living master, you know, a living Jesus or Buddha or whatever, so that they can talk to and touch and feel and follow physically. So this is cognitive dissonance. And I thought, well, it doesn't seem to be hurting anybody. Who am I to question? I'm still questioning my own spiritual devotion, right? Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. this is where the narrative gets twisted. Okay. And so, you know, so that's, that's what happens in it. And it, I, a lot of my friends who have, um, who've read my book that were in the Buddha field, they say, I'm so glad that you touched on this brainwashing notion because one person said to me, because we weren't brainwashed. We were willingly, you know, making these, these conscious decisions to do right. what we were doing. So, you know, we weren't victims in that sense. And I do not see myself as a victim of my choices i see myself as a victim of pathological liars mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so like like bernie madoff mm -hmm. if they're pathologically lying to you and the reality that you think you're seeing is being told not just by him but by everyone else is not the reality what do you do with that you know yeah, it seems like a, the key of it is that uh the audience has to be willing 
you know, you, you right. want to, you want to hear it. Uh, and then right. you have other people validating what you want. So it makes it more, more, more real to you. Exactly. I, I guess it also doesn't hurt that um, uh, the people that you were associating with tend to be very good looking. I was looking at uh, an article uh, related to your experience and I, and I saw, I saw your cult leader, the, the leader there. And he looks like, you know, some, some muscle guy, you know, the ladies, yeah. he was gay, but I'm sure that the women were like, yeah. Ooh, he's so cute, whatever. And then yeah. a lot of the women and the guys, it seemed like everybody, maybe just the clip that I saw, everybody looked very, very handsome or very pretty. So it's like, you're right. You're in with the attractive crowd. I mean, did he, the people did he, I know in your, in your case, you approached them or you, you got into it that way, but did he um, pursue people that were beautiful or pretty as a means of his marketing well, that's, plan? Yeah, that, that's a really, uh, that's a good question. You're right. The pictures that you saw and the pictures that are depicted in all of the articles and in the movie, hmm. we were coined the cult of the beautiful people. Hmm. And uh, we were, but you have to understand, first of all, we were, most of us young, we hmm. were in our twenties and Part of the discipline, it wasn't that we were necessarily forced, although it was group think. Part of the discipline was to live an extremely healthy life. So we were doing things that are fads today. Um, you know, we weren't eating dairy or sugar or caffeine or, or, or um, alcohol or red meat. Or oh, you're, you're a vegan before it was cool. <laughs> we, weren't, we weren't a vegan. We ate okay. all other protein other than red meat, but mm. we were, we were really health conscious and we worked out and we were athletes and we were, and that was part of the discipline. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it doesn't matter what you look like, you're going to eventually be the best of the best that you can be. Mm. Right. So we were young and we were health, really health conscious. We meditated like several hours a day. You know, we, we lived in a primarily a stress free community. So, mm. you know, yeah, what's what's not to like. And um, we were taught that it wasn't so much, oh, don't you eat that, but more that eating certain things or sugar or caffeine or alcohol or things like that would lower your energy and lower your experience in the meditation. Hmm. That, seemed, that seemed reasonable, hmm. right? Hmm. So it wasn't like, oh, you do this because I tell you. But on the other hand, that was the underlining premise, but he would handle everybody different. A narcissistic sociopath are very, they have an, a, a, a skill, and I always say to people, don't ever assume you're smarter than they are, because you're not. It doesn't matter. I'm, am I more educated than he is? Yes. Am I smarter in my field? Yes. But am I smarter in manipulation? No. Hmm. I'm a very empathic person. I'm a very, you know, see, narcissists don't, they have no ability to be empathic. And so they're, though, those who are empathic, those who are seeking to love and to be in selfless service, they don't relate to somebody who has no ability to empathize. They think everybody is like that, right? So for a sociopath, they're very clever. They'll tell you whatever you need to hear and they'll be whatever you need them to be. So they'll be a chameleon. 
So they may be to some a tough guy like Trump. I'm a big tough guy. He's about as tough as a guinea pig. And that's all he is. He's a very weak, very frightened little boy. So is my, my leader, right? But he'll be the righteous, benevolent Buddha, right? And it's all an act. He's not that way. And I go into that at length. Behind closed doors, he was a spoiled, violent, you know, fussy little brat is what he was. Mm. But we didn't see that. He would Mm. walk out, you know, with this whole air about him. And he would maintain this air and the stillness and whatever. And the people who saw him behind closed doors never divulged that. They never told us that he was a fraud and that he he preaches one thing and practices another. Hmm. So what do you do with that? <laughs> I don't know if you ever saw the show um, uh, House, uh, who was yeah. a, 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 yeah. as yeah. you just, if you described narcissist, it made me think about that character House and, and how yeah. manipulative he was. Oh my gosh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and you know, um, the, the book, The Sociopath Next Door by Martha Stout, PhD, hmm. um, she describes in a chilling, which I, which I quote her in my book, a chilling description of a narcissist and a narcissistic sociopath, chilling. And basically in her studies, in her research, she says that one out of 25 Americans are sociopathic. One out of 25? 25, yes. Wow. Yeah. So, Hmm. you know, there's another series that's really good called Dirty John. Have you seen that series on Netflix? I've I've seen it advertised on Netflix. I haven't watched it. Oh, my God. That's a true story. That's a true story of a narcissistic sociopath. And you can see... When you, when you look at that story, I like that story because uh, it is a true story of a woman who falls in love with a guy online who is a deliberate narcissistic sociopath, and he is a predator. Mm. And his goal is to take her for all she's worth. But behind the scenes, he's working to alienate her from her daughters and her family. Eventually, he tries to kill her daughter. He, he separates them. He tries to take all of her money. He does all of these things. But on the surface, what he is to her, she has no idea that this is happening. Interesting. So we have to be really careful. You Don't know, think that they're not smarter. It makes me also wonder about how this plays into the, in the politics. Um, a lot, it, it seems to me that in this hyperpolarized political culture, it's a us versus them. It's like people are forgotten that we're all Americans. We all live in this country. We need to figure out ways to work together. It's more, um, like I said, us versus them kind of thing. And then you have on, on both sides, Republican and Democrats, different um, uh, leaders who people tend to uh, idealize. I don't know if that's the right word. So like you mentioned how Trump uh, on the right-hand side, people, um, uh, worship him to some extent right. you could say on the right. left you have people like um alexander ocasio cortez you know you have a lot of young people really into her pelosi things like that uh the talking heads as i call them you see them on tv and it's, right. it's really interesting what kind of parallels can you make 
in the in the world of politics, you know, left, right, doesn't matter which, but what are some things you, you notice going on in politics today that you can make yeah. a comparison uh, to your experiences? Yeah. So there's one thing that we have to be very careful, very careful about, because that's mm. what's happening today. And that's part of the defense. Uh, this first of all, this notion of what aboutism. Um, and people will read my book and some people will think, even though I, I tell them in the introduction, this is not about politics. Uh, yes, I talk about Trump in my book. I also talk about Hitler and Mussolini and Putin and Kim Jong-un and, you know, Manson and, you know, all of these others. There's a very, very big difference between somebody or some ideology that you like, maybe like a lot. Mm. the difference between that and a cult. So I had a, uh, <clears throat> I, had, I was interviewed uh, by someone recently um, and the, the host asked, he said, well, what about the cult of Obama? Okay. Mm -hmm. There is no cult of Obama. There are people that love Obama, just as there is no cult of Bush and no cult of Reagan and no cult of Clinton either. There's a very, very big difference. You may love this person. You may, you know, yay, campaign for him, give him all your money, you know, whatever, to, mm. to get them in, in a position of power. You may love their ideology, but there's a very big difference between a cult under the purview of a narcissist, of a, a malignant narcissist, and a politician. We all have a little narcissism in us and most politicians are narcissistic. You, you almost have to be to have that much self-confidence to think that you can run a country, sure. right? Sure. So if you're going to be a celebrity and you're or a rock star or whatever, you have a little bit of narcissism in you to be able to give you the courage to stand in front of millions of people and do your thing. And I, I really delineate in my book the difference, and I use um, excerpts from the, um, the Diagnostic Manual of Mental Disorders. And I go like step by step of how to recognize a malignant narcissist, one who is a dangerous sociopath, versus someone who just is very passionate about what they believe in. And you can tell the difference and I'll tell you that idea of empathy, right? Mm, mm. Whatever you think about AOC or Nancy Pelosi or Biden or Bush or Reagan or whatever, their ability to empathize is your key. I, mm. do, I do believe that Biden is an empathic person. I do believe that he genuinely feels people he feels their pain or their struggle. I also believe that Bush, even though I didn't like Bush, I do believe that there's a heart in Bush that in his, you know, he's got an indoctrination of what, you know, what is good policy or bad policy. And he thought by implementing that, he could genuinely save his country by going to war or whatever. Hmm. Um, that's a different, that is a totally different animal than a Donald Trump. Donald Trump has no uh, uh, policy. Donald Trump's policy is Donald Trump. This is a malignant and dangerous pathology, not a character flaw. Donald Trump was a Democrat his whole life. 
until he found a group that could feed his narcissism. So with a narcissist, what he did is he figured out what you want and he gives it to you. And as long as he gives it to you, you feed him back adulation and worship in this case. And as long as you feed that, he will feed you and go as far as he needs to go to maintain that relationship. That is profoundly dangerous. How, how's, it from, how's, it from any, how's it different from any politician who wants to maintain their power? Because you can tell, in other words, and this is why I was so inspired to write this because I could, mm. having, having spent 25 years knowing the difference. Sure. And it, take, and it may take 25 years to, for you to figure it out. I mean, I understand, <laughs> you know, right. I understand all these people who worship this guy and think he was sent here by God. I understand it because, hey, it took me 25 years to look in retrospect and go, oh my God, right? When you see somebody who, um, well, in my book, I go pretty much line by line out sure, of sure. the, um, out of the uh, diagnostic manual. And I show, you know, here's a sentence of a characteristic. And then I show the characteristic of my teacher and the characteristic of a Hitler or a Mussolini or a Trump. And people go, oh my God, how can you, how can you possibly put them in the same category? I'm sorry, but wake up because mm. this is the kind of mindset that this book is a warning and it's not political. It may seem like it's political, but it is not. We, our country has never really been in this position before. We really have never been under a sociopath. There's been a, like I said, a lot of, they're all narcissists. All politicians are narcissists to a degree, but a malignant narcissist is different. And usually they have quite a background themselves of abuse. Um, you know, when you've got something like, like 350 letters from psychiatrists to the Congress who have diagnosed Trump with a warning this isn't a political matter to them. These guys recognize what I recognize. It's like, holy crap, hang on to your hats, because this is a different animal than we've ever seen. So you've had all of these psychiatrists who have basically warned the Congress against him. They pretty much ignored it. They have tried to, you know, institute the, um, uh, the amendment, the, uh, the 25th Amendment. They've, they've brought this up, like take this man out. I don't care what your politics are. Take him out because he does not have the ability to care about anyone else but Donald Trump. And he gives you, he gives you that idea. And when you, when you add, when you scream in his rallies and you worship him, that just feeds the narcissist in him. It is a feedback loop. And I realized how we developed with our teacher, we created a monster. He wasn't like that as much in the beginning and it took 20 some odd years for it to grow and grow and grow into, into this monster that he became. And so I know, I know that there are people that are gonna listen to, to our conversation and go, yeah, right, you know, 
Well, there's people in Hawaii right now that are still with my teacher. The movie has come out. My book has come out. All of his oldest disciples have come forward and talked about what's going on behind closed doors. We've talked about his personality and his abuse. Do you think that they care? Nope, they don't. So I am not trying to reach the Trump supporters. And they will, hopefully they'll find out sooner than later. But I know that they will not hear me. They cannot hear me. I couldn't, I couldn't hear for 25 years. You could never convince me that there was anything off about my teacher ever. And I would have fought for him. I may have. I don't know if I would. I mean, the, the, the movie, The Push, kind of tells you how far a person will go. Um, but I did a lot of things in hindsight that were unethical. Mm. Did I think, did I think that they were unethical at the time? No, I thought it was my duty to protect him More and to the, protect my community. The ends you know? justifying the means kind of thing. The end justifying the means. And I thought that I was heroic in some way mm. of, of protecting him and protecting our little world. And so that's another thing, this, this notion of exceptionalism. You know, they train you to feel like you are exceptional, that you're the true American, the true patriot, mm. the true holy company is what we actually refer to ourselves as, because we had this whole way of life that we subscribed to that created this notion of exceptionalism. So we looked at everybody else as, oh, you poor thing. This is the way they look at anyone who is against Trump. Oh, they're duped. Oh, they're brainwashed. Oh, they're just being manipulated by the media or whatever. They cannot and will not see what's happening to them until perhaps it's too late. Until how many more January 6th do we need? And how close did we come to mass murder? And he instilled that, you know, he aroused that in them to make them do things that otherwise good people would never do. That's what the push is about. Let me ask you, let me ask you this in, in, just in closing as the time creeps upon us, politics uh, are not going to go away. <laughs> Politicians will be here uh, nope. just like deaf and taxes. So yep. <laughs> what would you advice would you give to, uh, to voters who are considering uh, voting in the next election uh, and they're looking at all the different candidates and they want to make sure that they're not electing another narcissist. Uh, what, what are some warning signs you would tell voters before you vote, look at the candidates and look for these signs? What would you advise them? First of all, look at, look, do they have empathy? Do hmm. they have the ability to feel you? Um, you know, somebody who sits on a gold toilet doesn't really care about your neighborhood. Mm. They can't even relate to your neighborhood. So we are fools to think that that king is going to care about you and your family and your friends and your neighborhood and your communities that are suffering, really suffering. So first of all, can they empathize with you? Do they use bully tactics to manipulate their constituents What's happening right now, which is interesting and somewhat frightening, is, you know, demagogues 
in other countries, we've seen demagogues. Um, the constituents project a, a paternal projection onto them, a daddy figure. Right. We're actually projecting a reflection in Trump, like the kitten who looks in the mirror and sees a lion. And so those who feel insecure themselves and they want a tough guy bah! who's going to kill their opponents, who's going to slam them and hurt them and, you know, beat them up, you know, and scream, mm. you know, I'll put them in jail. I'll kill them all. That's what he says. Be really careful because this is a person who's not going to be partisan. So if you want a real democracy, you've got to face what democracy is. And that is compromise, whether we like it or not, you know, and so we have to see what is better for the whole and not for either the individual or for one side. And right now it's, it, it's divide and conquer. It's deliberate. It's been a deliberate manipulation to mm. divide and conquer. Sure. So we have to, we have to watch that in a democracy we have to see that if we are not capable of looking at our society as a whole and not as the individual, if we are not concerned about our planet and our states, when Donald Trump says, don't send any, um, any uh, support to California when they're burning down, don't give them any federal funds because they don't support me, that's a very serious sign. That is a dangerous sign for a leader because it's all about him, you know? Okay. So if they lie, if they, if they continue to pathologically lie, there is another, hello, there's another thing. Be really, really careful. Politicians lie or they flub or they pivot or they try and, you know, manipulate what they're being said. But ball face out and out lies that you can see, like if they're trying to, um, if they're trying to gaslight you. No, that's not what you see. That's not what's happening. But wait, the sky is blue. No, it's not. It's fuchsia. No, it's blue. No, you're wrong. They're just trying to tell you it's blue. Watch out. <laughs> because you know what you see. You know what you feel. You know, mm -hmm. so, so feel that, you know, and really go, wow, if this just doesn't feel right, don't be influenced it's kind of like um adam schlesinger or kinginger adam kinginger mm. he's one of the few him and liz cheney do i agree with their policies no but they took a really heroic stance in saying wait a minute enough is enough i know what i see and i'm not going to follow that and look what they did look what they did to them Look what they're doing to them now. Poor Kinginger is like his whole family has maligned him. And I say in my book, I write, I, I actually quote the letter that they wrote him of now that he's, he's in the, uh, what is it? The army of Satan's army. Imagine what a religious person that he's grown up being is now accused of being in Satan's army. That's some sick stuff there, you know? Yeah, I, I think there is um, lessons to be learned on both sides for sure. And I appreciate you bringing out those points. Um, just to reiterate, uh, look for when you before you vote, look at your candidates, see if they can empathize, see if they yeah. can compromise and yeah. see um, how badly they lie, knowing that all yeah. politicians lie <laughs> to, to a certain yeah. extent. 
But that. watch for the, the humility. And the hum- See oh, if humility. they okay. have humility. Okay. See if there's a bone of humility in them. Mm. Because if they're just bloviating, I'm this and I'm that and I'm going to do this for you. Watch out. Interesting. That's what Hitler said, you know. Interesting. I think you made some, some really good points. And I think um, for those listening, whether I agree or disagree politically, I think there's a lot that can be learned from your book. A lot can be learned from this yeah. conversation. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think it's um, behooves people to be open to hearing either side, agree or disagree. I think we right. as a country need to be able to just listen. And we're genuinely listening to see where someone's coming from instead of just right. automatically putting the shields up. So uh, I yeah, really... And- you know, I take it at the at the end, and I and I do wrap it up on a good note on my on my book. Hmm. In other words, how how do you? I'm I'm not taking you down this grim path, and pointing the finger and whatever. As much as I am saying, I know this from experience, not from you're doing this and you're doing that. But no, this is what I did. Mm-hmm. You know, so it is a opening of the kimono, so that you trust that my 25 years experience with this is what I'm trying to convey so that you don't have to experience it. Experience it in the comfort of your home, reading a book or listening to an audible so that you don't have to go through the pain that I went through, you know, and that's kind of why I did it. I think a wise person learns from other people's mistakes and not just their own, uh, to be sure. Tell us again, the title of your book and how we can all get a copy. It's, It's called The Followers, Holy Hell and the Disciple of Narcissistic Leaders. You can get it on Amazon and you can get it on Audibles and it's at Barnes and Noble. And if you can't find it there, then go to Radia, R-A-D-H-I-A, Gleese, G-L-E-I-S dot com. And there's articles and there's, and oh, I just won, uh, I just found out recently, I just won the Pencraft Award uh, for nonfiction autobiography. Congrats. I didn't even know that. I was so Congratulations. excited. Congratulations. Yeah. To make yeah, it easier for all the... To make it easy on all the listeners, I'm going to leave a link in the podcast description to where you can pick up a book and go to our website. And I'll also will leave a link if I can to uh, Amazon's Primes, um, uh, where you can uh, check out the documentary online as well. So yeah, the Amazon Prime Holy Hell. So Holy Hell is in the title of my book, hmm. um, but Holy Hell. And I suggest people see the documentary first because it's. You can't tell a 30-year tw- story in 100 minutes, but he True. did a beautiful job. So when you see the, the imagery, then when you're reading the book, you'll go, oh, yeah, that's what that looks like, you know, or that's what they look like. So it kind of helps to put the pictures together. Well, uh, Radia Glees, thank you so much for your awesome. uh, being on this show and for your background, your perspective. You brought a lot to the table, a lot for people to think about, no matter what side yeah. of the political spectrum that they're on. It, yeah. It's it's People need to listen to both sides more. So thank you so much for uh, presenting what you did. Thank you again. Thank you. Thanks for your time. And bye-bye. Bye-bye. You just heard the Things I Think About podcast. If you love what you heard, hate what you heard, or don't know what you just heard, Jim Stroud wants to hear from you. Contact him at jimstroud at jimstroud.com. And while you're at it, share this podcast and spread the word that it's up to us to save America.